The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. The Gospel of Luke, today we are looking at verses 57 to 66. The theme here and the point is the birth of John the Baptist, well-known figure. Maybe most of you, if not all of you, have heard something about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he's a character in the Bible, in the four Gospels. John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Wait a minute. First, wait, First Baptist Church of Cupertino. That's this church. Baptist. Did that have anything to do with John the Baptist? Uh, a little bit. John the Baptist was the first baptizer in the ministry of Jesus. And then the New Testament talks about doing baptism and why we should do baptism and how baptism should be done according to the Bible. So it is a prominent ordinance and command given in the Bible. So yes, First Baptist Church of Cupertino has some relation, finding its legacy in the roots of the ministry of John the Baptist. Pretty cool. Much more we're going to learn about John the Baptist as we go through the Gospel of Luke. Today we have the privilege of looking really at his birth. We've already been introduced and promised that a son is going to be born. His name will be John. We saw that as uh, we studied earlier in the chapter by way of review. As a matter of fact, we were reminded, are you ready to be blessed out of the gospel of Luke today? I hope you are. I hope you're, you're ready to get your strength encouraged because that was the promise of Luke at the very beginning. Remember that? If we just listen attentively with a believing heart, trusting the Spirit of God, knowing the veracity of God's Word as the facts are laid out historically by Luke systematically through the guidance of the Holy Spirit with the testimony of many eyewitnesses who were there in the days of Jesus including historical events and people that are undeniable, that are landmarks of the reality of history and the events of Jesus Christ as we go through this gospel and we see fulfilled prophecy after fulfilled prophecy, Luke guaranteed in verses 1 through 4 that if you are a believer, if you are open to being taught of God, your faith was going to be increased and nurtured. That's what he said. And the terminology that he used that we explained was, you will know the exact truth about Jesus. And one of the translations we said, you will have certainty, certitude. What a beautiful thing to have certitude in a day of instability and agnosticism in the, in the day in which we live here in our world. So that is the promise of God as we go through Luke, as we take the gospel at face value, as Luke gave it, and we look to claim the promise that our faith is going to be encouraged. We're going to leave this place if we believe what God has laid out at face value, that we're going to have more certitude in our faith, which is going to provide stability in our life. Because you're going to leave this place and you're going to go into that crazy world for the next six or seven days. We need stability. We need a rock. We need a foundation. That comes from the truth of God and His Word. So let's go ahead and look at this passage. Let me read it. Last week, we went over the passage just before about this some call it the Song of Mary. It's not really a song. It was her answer to Auntie Elizabeth, her relative, about these promises God has made that she's, carrying, she's going to be giving birth to the Messiah. Mary was going to give birth to the Savior of the world, and that Mary uh, gave this great praise to God. She gave all the glory to God as she responded back to Elizabeth and recounted all the promises of God in the Old Testament that really the Messiah was going to fulfill. And some of those prophecies, John the Baptist would fulfill, and we're going to see that today. So Mary finishes her response to Elizabeth. She went to visit Elizabeth and Zechariah until John the Baptist was born. 
uh, verse 56 concluded by saying, And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months until the fulfillment of her pregnancy, and then she returned to her home where she would continue on in her pregnancy being with Joseph. So we pick up from there, verse 57 and following, a transition. Now we're going back to the birth of John the Baptist. We already saw that God had promised Zechariah, the old man, and Elizabeth, the old woman who was barren and never had a child. Her womb was basically dead. She may have been in her 70s, 80s, we don't know how old, but it was impossible, humanly speaking, for her to get pregnant and have a child. And then an angel, Gabriel, told Zechariah, your wife is going to have a baby, miraculously. Not only that, he's going to be a very special baby. He's going to fulfill prophecy. His name shall be John. That was what the angel said to Zechariah before Elizabeth was pregnant. Then she conceives, nine months transpires, now we are launched nine months forward, and that's where we pick up. Elizabeth is ready to give birth after being pregnant for nine months with this baby in her womb that publicly hasn't been named yet. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, who hasn't been named yet, the child. And they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, no, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, the mother, there is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father, signs to his father, Zacharias, who was probably deaf and dumb because he was struck by the angel for punishment temporarily, signaling to Zacharias, what, what do you want to call your son? You're the dad after all, verse 63. And uh, Zacharias asked for a tablet to write on, a little portable tablet probably made out of wood, and wrote as follows, his name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth, Zacharias' mouth was instantaneously open. He could talk again in his tongue was loosed from the curse of God, and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them, their family, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with this child, this, this John, this son of Zacharias. So that's the passage. Let's walk through it. Look at it historically and then glean blessings along the way that transcend time and actually apply to us. It's a narrative passage, but I broke it up just into three parts just to kind of help you as we walk through it. The first part is just verse 57 and 58. We're going to talk about the personal provision. There's a personal provision. God is an intimate, personal God. He deals with communities, yes. He deals with families and nations and corporate entities. And at the same time, God is that always intimate and personal God. And we're going to see his personal touch, verse 57 and 58. So there's the personal provision. And then 59 and following is the prophetic promise. John's birth fulfills prophecies. And then verse 64 to 66 is the providential power regarding this birth and the mission of John. Let's go ahead and look at the personal provision. First of all, it says, Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. There's the personal provision. God is the provider. 
God is creator, God is judge, God is savior, God is many things, God is also provider. We know that beautiful name from the Old Testament, Jehovah Jireh, or Yahweh provides. God is the provider. God provides not just for believers, God provides for unbelievers as well. He's gracious to them whether they realize it or not, deserve it or not, thank him or not. He's a gracious provider. He reigns good on the evil and the just. God is a gracious provider as the creator, but then he's a particular and specific provider for his people that he loves in a special way. Timothy tells us that God loves the world, but he loves his people in a special way, in a unique way. So there is a unique way that God loves his people. And here's evidence of it right here. Elizabeth and Zacharias, they are special. They're not unbelievers, they are believers. The scripture already said earlier in Luke that they were righteous and they obeyed the commandments of God. They're not, they weren't perfect, they were sinful, and it says they obeyed all the commands of God. Does that mean they were perfect and obeyed all the Ten Commandments? No. Or all the commandments of Moses? No, but they obeyed all the commandments. What does that mean? Well, when they sinned and blew it, they did obey the Mosaic command because when you blew it and sinned, according to the Mosaic law, you had to deal with your sin, usually through some kind of sacrifice. You buy a turtle dove or a pigeon and you take it to the priest and you have him slice it in half or a lamb and you offer sacrifice and you ask forgiveness to God whom you offended. That's righteous. That's obedient. That's what it means. So they, they walked a walk of faith. They knew God. They loved God. God loved them as well. And he has a special and unique love for them, and he provides for them in a special way, and the, particularly the personal provision that God gives here to Zechariah, and particularly Elizabeth, says he gave them a son. This is a personal provision. We saw earlier that it said in Luke chapter 1 that she was advanced in years, so like I said, she's probably, we don't know, but maybe 70, 80 years old. Verse 7 says she was barren. Her, her womb, she never had a child. She wanted to have a child. They wanted to have children. She was burnt. Her womb was unproductive and dead. In her culture 2,000 years ago, as a Jewish woman, that was a huge void. That was, that was even shameful in her culture. That was embarrassing. Many times in that culture, they, they believed that they were being punished by God or cursed by God. We didn't have children. What, so what did we do wrong that God would curse us and we can't have a baby? Some people even think that today. Every time there's some kind of shortcoming or struggle or trial in your life or something you're not getting, we are quick to ask that question, oh, what did I do wrong that God's now punishing me? He's getting back at me. And no doubt that could be what Elizabeth and Zechariah began to think after a while. Nevertheless, they were faithful people because they persisted in prayer and they kept pleading with God, God, be merciful, be gracious, open up my wife's womb. God, we want to have children. That was their heart's desire. We know that because that's what it says. And Luke, the angel told Zechariah in verse 13, your prayer has been answered. Your petition has been answered. Your wife is going to have a child. So they didn't give up on praying. They didn't give up on trusting and hoping, probably because they saw God move in the Old Testament with the likes of Sarah and Abraham, Hannah and her husband, and several others. So they were faithful God answered that prayer. It was his sovereign choice, by the way. We can always pray. We can pray about anything, but we need to pray in the will of God. We need to pray in the name of Christ. We need to pray in faith, trusting God. I think God answers all prayer. God answers all prayer, and sometimes his answer is no. Because he knows what's best. In this case, 
God answered Elizabeth and Zechariah with a yes. And in order to do this, God had to do a miracle. Miraculous. He had to open up her womb. He had to bring life back to her dead, barren, old, expired womb and create life. So this is, this is a supernatural work. This is a miraculous uh, work of God. At the same time, it's done in a providential manner, meaning a lot of the things that God is doing here in the lives of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and even John, he's doing providentially. In other words, he's doing supernatural works through the means of people and second agents. And we're going to see that, and here's another. He uses the natural means of, of Elizabeth and Zechariah and their male and female relationship and their intimacy, and miraculously they would have a child, but still the process was going to be natural by which he was going to accomplish it. John the Baptist wasn't born of a virgin. This was through natural means. That's called providence, God's goodness, doing miraculous things through natural means, and that would be true of Elizabeth. And so what a joy for Elizabeth. She had been told nine months earlier through her husband, or at least the angel told Zacharias in the temple, your petition has been answered, God has heard you, your prayer will be answered, your wife will be with child, you will bear a son, you will name him John. And we saw that Zechariah, he, he struggled with doubt. He was excited, but he had doubt. And so God chastened him by closing his mouth, making him basically dumb and deaf until the baby would be born. So, so Zechariah has gone nine months without being able to talk or hear. And so he has learned sign language of some sort with his wife, Elizabeth. We know that from the passage. And he also picked up along the way a little pad, not a, one of those electronic ones that we have today, those pads. This is a totally different kind of pad. It's probably just a piece of wood, and it could have been a wax board, or maybe he had some charcoal he kept handy, and he keeps writing it on the wood, and he's communicating to his wife and others through his, uh, his talking pad, and he has that handy. And that's what he's been doing for nine months, plus the sign language. But God provides miraculously. What a gracious provision this is. And then you see the second part of the provision in verse 58 with a special touch. Uh, her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her. How did the neighbors know that? Because it was an angel privately talking to Zechariah in the temple, tells him all this stuff, and then Zechariah comes out and he can't talk. How did he communicate that to his wife? Wow, here's what Gabriel said. And he said, you're going to have a child. Who knows how she reacted at the time? And apparently, Zacharias followed through and told Elizabeth what the name of the... Oh, by the way, we're supposed to name him John. Really? Yeah, why? Because that's what the angel... That's what the angel said to do. Oh, okay. So apparently, Elizabeth remembered that and believed because we're going to see that in the passage. But it went beyond Zechariah. So they communicate. They had nine months to communicate to family, friends, and relatives. And no doubt in that time, uh, near where they lived in Judea, they had family, friends, extended family. And that's just kind of how they lived. And many families live that way today. You, you live in the community of your extended family and friends. And everybody's business is everybody else's business. And that's just the way it is. And that's how family and friends are. And we see that evident in the passage as well. And so over time, they came to realize that uh, something amazing happened and apparently uh, Zechariah got an angelic visitor and told him that his wife was going to be with child. And now they've actually seen that. She became pregnant. She's developing. It's undeniable. What else did that angel tell you, Zacharias, about that child? Well, we don't know what he said. We don't know if he made it clear. Well, 
yeah, he did say I have to name him John. Now, if he did say that, that did not compute or register with everybody that he told, including the mother-in-laws regarding the name, because we're going to see that as well. But there was a lot of hubbub going on about, boy, this John, and this is amazing, and Elizabeth, she's a grandma, and now she's with child, and God intervened, and Jehovah is amazing, and Yahweh's the provider. And ultimately, what did God do by doing this? Verse 58, his neighbors and his relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy. That's the key word. God had extended mercy to Elizabeth. Mercy. What does mercy mean? Consistently throughout the Bible, mercy is when... God divinely intervenes, usually as a gift at his initiative, to relieve affliction. That's what mercy is. It's, it's kind of the negative side of grace. Mercy is to relieve affliction, and that's exactly what he did. She was afflicted by being barren. She had great sorrow deep in her soul. He removed that by his merciful provision by giving this child. As a result, all of her family and friends, they were rejoicing. They were rejoicing with her over it. Now, Gabriel did tell Zechariah, that's a prophecy fulfilled. He said, your wife is going to have a child. This child is going to be great. And verse 14, uh, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. This was fulfilled right here on this day. Personal provision. Great mercy extended to Elizabeth and Zacharias. Again, not because they deserved it or they were any different or special than anybody else, but this was in God's plan. He was going to use them in a special way. God's personal provision. Scripture says that God is a God of mercy. He continues to be merciful. The same God from 2,000 years ago is equally merciful today, and He wants to be merciful. He wants to be merciful to His people today. Mercy means when God intervenes and relieves your affliction, your troubled soul. Did you have any trouble in your soul this week? Did you need some relief from affliction deep in your soul? Go through the Psalms, find the word mercy, and consistently the way the word mercy is used is it's someone like David pleading to his God, begging for mercy. God, give me mercy. God, show me mercy. God, relieve me with your mercy. And many times you'll see, and the Lord answered his prayer, and the Lord answered his prayer, and the Lord attended to his prayer. That's how we should pray. God, relieve my affliction. God, show mercy to me. God, I don't deserve it, but God, I'm dependent upon you. That's how we need to pray. That's how we need to live. That's how we need to trust God. So that's the personal provision that God so graciously provided this older couple. Gave birth to a son. Let's look at the prophetic promise. So now it goes beyond the personal to the blessings are corporate and even historical for the nation and for the world, the prophetic promise. Uh, this John the Baptist, not just any child born. I mean, the fact that he was born to his mother who was of that age is miracle enough or amazing enough, but the implications of how John would be used are absolutely startling and fulfill many Old Testament prophecies. So that's why I call it the prophetic promise. John the Baptist fulfilled several Old Testament prophecies explicitly. Verse 59, and it happened that on the eighth day, so, they, so eight days goes by and they haven't even named him yet publicly and formally. To me, that's kind of weird, but that's okay. Uh, our four children, I think we named all four of our kids before they were born. Did we haggle, fight, and all that good stuff with certain people? Yeah, but we named them before. But I have met people who actually haven't named their children even after they were born. And they're at the hospital, and they're there for two days trying to figure out the name of the child. So that's, that's all right. 
but with Zacharias and Elizabeth, this may have been a Jewish custom that maybe they didn't name them sometimes until the day of circumcision if it was a boy. So it happened that on the eighth day, in fulfillment of Leviticus chapter 12, they came to circumcise the child because it was a male. That's what God said to the Jews to do through Moses. Okay, you're part of the covenant. The sign of the covenant is circumcision. And if you have a boy, on the eighth day, you circumcise that child. And they are being obedient to the law of Moses as good and faithful, trusting Jews who love Yahweh. And so they take their baby boy and they have him circumcised on the eighth day. And it says, interesting in verse 59, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. Who's they? They were going to call it. It's not Zacharias and it's not Elizabeth. Mom and dad were not going to call him Zachari- uh, John. Sorry, Zacharias. They were going to call him John. So they is somebody else. Who's they? Well, family and friends and neighbors. You know, the influential ones. Because that's what happens when you have a child. You're, you're pregnant, you have a child, and then you got the in-laws, and they're figuring out your life for you and dictating all your plans and how you're going to raise your child. And what the name, that's, what parent, that's what grandparents are for. And they're going to name your child and all that. That's what was going on here. And they literally did that. His name shall be Zacharias. They did not consult mom and dad. So this is real life. So mom finally, she's had it, circumcised the child in obedience to Old Testament Scripture. And mom answers, and she says, this is emphatic in your Greek text, by the way. Uki, that's a Greek word, uki. It's not just a no, it's an emphatic no. Absolutely not. No stinking way. You, no way. Uh-uh. So it's emphatic. Uki. You can say that, moms, next time your kid tries to take a cookie. Uki cookie. When he's trying to steal it out of the kitchen? That way they can't accuse you of saying no all the time. Uki, uki. That's what she did. No way. God forbid. His name is not going to be Zacharias. So they were probably offended. It's like, oh, wow. How offensive to your husband. But he shall be called John. John is the Hebrew version of God is gracious. God is gracious. God, that was a name given by God through Gabriel. His name shall be God is gracious. And God would be gracious through the ministry of John the Baptist as John the Baptist would cry out and pave the way for the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the only means of grace to the Creator. Through Jesus Christ, the only Savior, that would be his name. His name would be a living prophecy of the ministry he would fulfill, paving the way. Well, they, they wouldn't be content with her answer, even though she's the mom, verse 61, and they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who's called by that name. You can't, you can't break tradition. We know about that as church people, right? Verse 62, and they made signs to his father because he was deaf and dumb. Zacharias. So somehow they're making gestures. Man, get dad over here. Settle this argument. Dad's going to agree with us. His name is Zacharias. He'll like that name. So they asked him, Dad, what do you want to name your first and only son? We like Zacharias. What do you think, Dad? Then he takes out his tablet. This word, by the way, tablet's the only time it's used in the entire Bible, Greek New Testament. So it's kind of a rare word. Somewhat obscure, but best they can determine, it's like a, it's portable, it's little, it's probably made out of wood, and he could write on it, and some people think it was made out of wax or something else, and used charcoal or some kind of chalk, so he could keep using it, kind of like a etch-a-sketch, that's where they came from. 
and he asked for a tablet, and he wrote as follows. Now, all the English versions say, his name is John. The Greek text literally says this, John is his name, and that's purposeful. He puts John, you put it on the front end, it's emphatic. John is his name. You heard my wife. Why? Because he's being obedient to Scripture. He was scared to death of that angel. It's like, I ain't going crossing that angel. He said, John, it's John. God is gracious. And they were all astonished. So I want to look at one prophecy because I said this is a prophetic promise. Just to, to highlight what a unique uh, individual John the Baptist was. Look at, go to Luke, uh, sorry, John, the Gospel of John chapter 1 real quick. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Now, this is when John the Baptist is born. We already saw in Luke 1 that the, Gabriel the angel told his dad, your wife is going to conceive. She's going to bear a child, which is a miracle. He's going to be filled with the Spirit from the womb. He's basically going to take a Nazarite vow. He's going to prepare the way of the Lord in fulfillment of Scripture in Isaiah 40, verse 3, 750 years before Christ was born, and also Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, 400 years before Christ was born. This child will fulfill those prophecies. He's going to come. He is going to be the Elijah to prepare the way of the Messiah. That's what the angel basically told him. Not only that, the angel said this interesting phrase, he shall be great in the Lord. He shall be great in the Lord. He shall be great in the Lord. So here you've got a fallen sinner who's going to be great. What makes a person great? Do we have any great people today? If I were to ask you, who are five of the greatest people on earth today? It'd be interesting to see what you say. I know what a lot of people would say out in the world is they refer to movie stars and athletes and rich people and whatever else. And No, what makes a person great? What makes a person great is great in the Lord. And Gabriel said, John the Baptist, even though he's going to be a sinner, he's going to need forgiveness, he is going to be great in the Lord. That doesn't mean he's going to be perfect. He's going to be great in the Lord meaning God is going to use him, he's going to love God, he's going to be faithful, and he has one of the greatest tasks in all of history, and that's preparing the way of the Lord in fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. That's exactly what he did 30 years later. John the Baptist came out of nowhere, pointing at Jesus, the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John the Baptist is called in Luke chapter 1, he would be great in the Lord. Jesus said he was the greatest man there ever was, born of women. He was the greatest man there ever was. What made him great, great in the Lord, one thing, I think, the main thing is that he was probably the most humble man there ever was. So in the eyes of the Lord, what makes one great? Humility, and that's what John the Baptist had, uh, had unlike few, if any others who walked before him. That's why he would be great. But look at John chapter 1. So you've got all this amazing stuff going on in the area of Judea. Everybody knows everybody. You say one word, and it just goes through the, the grapevine, the gossip chain, whoosh, like wildfire. And everybody knows who Zechariah was because he was a priest. He went into the temple. They know Elizabeth. She's been around for 80 years. They all know that she supernaturally conceived it in her 70s or 80s, long beyond, uh, beyond the ability to conceive. So they knew so God had intervened miraculously some way. Then they got this extra data and information from Zacharias himself interpreting and saying what the angel said. So no doubt the entire community around Judea knew that, boy, there's something special going on at that Zacharias and Elizabeth house. And that, that child, that little boy, boy, he, he's going to be something. The angel said he would be. 
Everybody's talking about it at the time of his birth. You know what's amazing? 30 years goes by. John the Baptist begins his ministry that is public out in front of everybody. And you got the religious leaders of his day who've probably known his family for 30 years. They don't have a clue who John is. Wait, how, how did you miss that? How did you miss the supernatural, miraculous nature of the conception of his birth? How did you miss that, what the angel told Zacharias? How did you miss that? All the promises of fulfilled Scripture. You guys are the religious leaders. You Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. I thought you had the Old Testament memorized. I thought you taught Isaiah in synagogue. I thought you had Malachi memorized. What do you mean, who's John? Well, that's exactly John chapter 1. John's out doing his ministry. Verse 19, this is the testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites, guys who should have the Old Testament memorized front and back, they went to interrogate John. They were intimidated by John's ministry. They wanted to be a part of it because they wanted to be endorsed of it because they knew it was swaying everybody, the whole town. So they didn't want to condemn it because they would condemn themselves because everybody was following John and listening to John. They didn't want to endorse it because then they would become subservient, and they were too proud for that. Plus, he's pointing to this unknown person called Jesus of Nazareth. They don't want to be any a part of that. And so they come up and they ask him, uh, verse 19, who are you? Who are you? And he confessed, and he did not deny, and he confessed, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah. Don't get me confused with the Messiah, the coming one, even though I am talked about in the Old Testament. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? Are you Elijah, the prophet to come, who is going to pave the way of the coming Messiah? And listen to what John said in verse 21. He said, I am not. I am not Elijah. Did you know that Matthew, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 that John the Baptist is Elijah, if you so want to believe that? He is Elijah, if you want to believe it. Matthew chapter 11. That's confusing. John said, I'm not Elijah. Jesus said, he is Elijah, if you want to believe it. What's that all about? Well, the angel said in Luke chapter 1 that John would do the ministry of Elijah in the spirit and the power of Elijah, in the spirit and the power after the nature of. God promised that, there, that Elijah would come before the coming of the Messiah. What the Old Testament saints didn't know is there would be two comings of the Messiah. And as a result, there would be two comings of Elijah. John the Baptist was the first installment of paving the way of the Messiah, fulfilling that prophetic role, preparing the way of the Savior. There is yet to come still another coming of Elijah, and it may very well be someone named Elijah or someone like the Old Testament Elijah or maybe Elijah himself who has appeared before, like at the Transfiguration. Amazing, but he's fulfilling that prophecy literally to a T in the Old Testament, the prophetic promise. John fulfilling the ministry of Elijah preparing the way. By the way, did you know that the Pharisees, not one of them, submitted themselves to the baptism of John? Arrogant. Let's go on to the last one. After the personal provision provided by God's mercy, then the prophetic promise as John fulfills Old Testament prophecy in Malachi and Isaiah, preparing the way of the Messiah. And then finally, there's the providential power, just amazing power, all that God did to accomplish this great work. At the end of verse 66, it says, For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. That's probably the key phrase in this passage. The hand of the Lord was certainly with John the Baptist and his family and Elizabeth and Zechariah. Did you know that the hand of the Lord is with us today? It is active today? You can't see it. That's 
symbolic for God is active. He's the living God. He's intervening. He cares. He responds to prayer. He does things for our good. He's the provider. He's in control of all things. He's literally on the throne up in heaven, orchestrating in control of all things, completely sovereign. Nothing gets by him. Nothing happens apart from his perfect will. Everything's going and it's going to culminate in his perfect plan. All the vicissitudes and trials and things that happen all throughout the week, things we don't even expect, things that are disappointments, things we wish didn't happen, the good, the bad, and the ugly, that is all under the purview of God's mighty, sovereign hand. That is the same God that is testified here in Luke chapter 1 when it says, for the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. And God's hand is still with his people today, his sovereign hand. Verse 64, let's look at the power here. And at once his mouth was opened. Well, that's what Gabriel said. You know what, Zacharias? I'm going to, God is going to chasten you because, Derek went over this, because of your unbelief. You doubted God. Got a personal invitation of an angelic visit for you. And how do you respond? In unbelief. Even though he's a righteous man. So the consequence was he'd be chastened for nine months, which would be very humiliating. I mean, it's kind of a stigma. You're, what, you're, you're the priest that was chosen that year to go into the temple. The people in the community just they looked up, oohed and awed of the priest. The lot fell to him, a supernatural providential work going to Zacharias. And here he's got to walk around for nine months not able to talk. Oh, what happened to you? Well, what happened to your husband? God doesn't talk? So it's all the groaning. Oh, yeah, he was, yeah, he, he didn't listen to the angel Gabriel who came to visit him. I mean, Gabriel came to, really? Personal visit? Yeah, vi personal visit. Well, wow, Gabriel's never come visit me. Well, he did, my, my husband, and he didn't believe him. Anyway, that's what wives are for. <laughs> Defend their hubby. So he had to put up with this for nine months. And so it's just this constant humiliating, no doubt Zacharias probably learned humility through this. The chastening of the Lord. That's, that's Hebrews 12. God chastens. He loves his people, but he chastens his people, doesn't he? And it's that soft, sovereign pressure that he pushes down on us, and we're like, oh, we're getting comfortable, and then, ow! So it's for you. I love you. It's for your good. You're going to mature from this. You're going to grow from this. You're going to have a different perspective. Ow! You're going to think about me. As a result of this, God knows what's best. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and disciplines. That's what he's doing for Zechariah for nine months. But he did say when the child's born, God would relieve his chastening, and he did. And so the baby's born, and it says, verse 64, at once. That means instantaneously. This was an instantaneous miracle. It was obvious. It was noticeable. He couldn't talk. Now he can talk. It wasn't this weird, progressive kind of so-called miracle that mo nobody's sure if it's happening, like sometimes uh, these famous fake healers will do, like on television. Or I've actually stood in line to get healed by a fake uh, healer one time when I was 19 years old. Long line. I was the last of about 50 people in line. And everybody in front of me was getting touched on the head, and then they were falling over. And then I got up there, and I had a sore back that literally ended my basketball career. And I got up there to the healer, and they asked me, what, what's my problem? And I said, my back. I have a severe back injury. And literally put their hand on my head and pushed my neck back. Ow! And, and I, didn't fall. I was the only one that didn't fall over. And literally, he did it again. In the name of Jesus, boom, and pushed my head again. And then, whoa, and a little harder. And then a third time, in the name of Jesus, pushed my head back. And the, the deacons on the side, they grabbed me and body slammed me down on the ground. <laughs> I am not kidding. 
So now, and my back didn't get healed. So my back hurts, now my neck hurts, and my whole body hurts. True story. But what was typical of a lot of those miracles, and why I was intrigued was the healer was doing progressive healings. Oh, and they'd bring somebody on the stage. Uh, what's your problem? Uh, I have a severe headache. Okay, uh, be healed. And then they'd tell them, uh, over the next three or four weeks, you'll probably be totally healed. So it was like a progressive kind of thing that you couldn't objectively evaluate, and it was deceptive enough to get me to get in line. And here, this is typical of a real biblical miracle at once, instantaneously complete. And it can be validated usually, and that's what happened here. John the ba- uh, John's uh, father could talk instantaneously. His mouth was open. God was gracious. His tongue was loosed. He began to praise God. He began to speak to the people, probably gave them even more information about what Gabriel had revealed at that time. People were overwhelmed. As a matter of fact, in verse 66, not only were they overwhelmed, it says fear came on all of those living around them. Fear, ah, phobos, phobia. We have phobias. That's where this word comes from. This is a healthy, reverent, awe-inspired fear that God is greater than me. We need this healthy fear. And they had fear in the face of a supernatural, unexplainable miracle that they knew was the hand of God, and they couldn't explain it any other way. They didn't try to explain it away naturally. They feared God. They feared the works of God. They feared the presence of God. They feared the holiness of God. This is healthy. We need a dose of this. I remember when I was in Israel in Israel a few years back, and we were on a tour with the church, and several of the places that uh, my friend was taking us to, he'd say, yeah, here was uh, the walls of Jericho, they think, which for years people didn't believe existed. And then, oh, and then they took us to a place where Joshua and all the two million Jews walked across the Jordan River, as described in the book of Joshua, on dry ground. Just, there it is, it's high, it's full, and then God said, cease, and the water stopped on both sides, and it says the ground was instantly dried, and two million Jews walked across, Hebrews walked across the river on dry ground. And we're seeing all these places of biblical miracles, and one of the spokespersons on the trip that was with the local church, just about every place that we went to tried to explain away the biblical miracle with a naturalistic explanation, undermining the miraculous nature of it. And I'll never forget, we got to the place where God had two million people walk across the Jordan River on dry ground, and he gave a devotional for 15 minutes saying, well, about that time, we think, historians say, that about 15 miles up the road there was a severe earthquake, and what that did is that moved all the rocks and whatever else, and it redirected the water from the Jordan River and made it go that way into the Mediterranean Sea, blah, 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 and as a result, about two days later, uh, the river that was here, it all dried up, and so they were able to cross the dry, dry ground. And I'm thinking, what? That isn't what the Bible says. The Bible's pretty clear. They got up to the river. It was there. God said, be gone. It was, and not only did it get removed, it was dry instantaneously. They crossed it, and when they crossed, the water came back. It was a miracle. So it's very common, unfortunately, many Christians try to explain away the miracles of God that should cause us to fear, give us awe, have us revere Him and explain it away through some kind of human explanation, a naturalistic explanation. Oh, evolution did that, or whatever it is. That really does undermine our worship of God, to revere and fear Him. So this is an appropriate response by these people. They knew that God was at work. It was amazing. It, was, uh, it couldn't be replicated. It was irrepeatable. 
Fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. Everybody knew about it. This is going to be amazing. What's going to become of this child? Verse 66, and all who heard them kept, all who heard these words and the miracles that happened, they kept them in mind, continually saying, what then will this child John be? How will he turn out? He's going to be used mightily, no doubt, by God in light of what we've seen and what God has said through his angel. I can't wait. Sadly, Zechariah and Elizabeth, it's very possible they didn't get to see the fruition of John's ministry, right? They probably went to be with the Lord before John reached 30, which is when he would begin his ministry. But there are plenty of people around who were here who were able to witness it. And they should have known that God's hand was on John in a very unique way. And that John would be great. But that's not really the story. John would be great, but John, who was great, was pointing to someone greater, wasn't he? That's how John the Baptist began his ministry. He was called to one thing and one thing only. He had disciples, but he didn't want disciples. He didn't need disciples. He kept shoving his disciples elsewhere to another path, to another master. I serve him, Jesus the King. He is the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. He's the only way to the Father. He's the sacrificial lamb. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Prophecies. He's the only way to know God. He's the only way to be reconciled to God. That was John's message. And we know that John was faithful to that message, and that's what made him one of the greatest men in history, one of the most humble men in history, as he pointed to our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus. Today, if you don't know Jesus Christ personally, you can know Jesus, literally. As your friend, yes, but first, as your Savior and Lord. He's the only one who can deal with your sin. That's what separates us from God the Father. He dealt with our sin by dying on a cross as a willing substitute to be punished by God the Father for our sin in fulfillment of Scripture. Then Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again. He rose himself from the dead, proving that he was God incarnate. And then he ascended back into heaven, and now he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, literally over the entire universe. He's coming back again. He could come at any time. We don't know when he can come, but in the meantime, he's being gracious. He's being patient. He's only waiting for one reason, and that's he's trying to woo sinners back to himself. So Jesus calls sinners through the gospel, the good news, that if you would acknowledge and admit, I am sinful, God, you created me. There's only one way I can have a relationship with you that is restored, and it is through Christ and his work and his person. Lord, save me. Be merciful to me, the sinner. You pray that prayer, you will go home justified. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together and just your wonderful word and the amazing reminders of historical truth, but also living truth 2,000 years ago, but relevant even for today. These same issues that they dealt with, we, we deal with. We are afflicted. We are weak. We're sinful. We need your help. And you're the same God. You're merciful. You're gracious. You are tender. You answer prayer. You've provided provision of a Savior through Jesus. God, we thank you for that. Thank you for those of us who already know you through the gospel, been adopted into your family through Jesus. And we do pray for those, if there are any who don't know you, that you just keep working on their hearts 
with your Holy Spirit, the circumstances of life, faithful, loving Christians that you brought into their life as well, and through powerful prayers we lift on their behalf to you, that you would be gracious. All for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.